Well, hey, welcome, Be Free. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Be Free Community Church. We're a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we do it. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, what we do together is we take communion. Now, communion, the Lord's Supper, is something that we're meant to do together. We're not meant to do communion on our own. And so because of that, during this time when we're online, uh, we're not going to take communion together on this video call. Rather, what we're going to do is take it together on the, on the video call, the Zoom call that happens immediately after this service. So I want to encourage you, please do join us on the Zoom call today. Get cracker and some juice ready for that uh, when, when we do it. And uh, yeah, please do join us over there right after this video call. Today we're in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And if you haven't been with us up to this point in our series on the book of Acts, let me bring you up to speed real quick. In Acts chapter 1, right at the beginning, in verse 8, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and we talked about what a witness is. A witness is somebody who bears witness. In other words, a witness is somebody who's got a story to tell, who has witnessed something, experienced something, and then can go and tell about what they seen, what they witnessed. And so Jesus tells these disciples, you have a story to tell. You have a story to tell about me, who I am, what I've done. And he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they do, until he does. And as soon as the Spirit comes, these disciples, they immediately begin bearing witness to the mighty works of God, telling about Jesus' life, about his death, about his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And when they do that in Acts chapter 2, the first part of Acts chapter 2, we see that this early church grows 25 times its original size, from 120 to 3,000 people. Now today in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we get a peek into this early church community. And what we find in this, in this story is incredibly beautiful. Really, it's, it's attractive and it's compelling. I wonder if you know anybody who's got a personality that's just attractive and compelling. If they're in a room, you want to be in that room. If they leave that room, you're, you start checking your watch to see if it's time for you to leave that room too. Wherever they are, you want to be there. I'm sure immediately different faces start coming to mind for you. For me, it's my friend Brent. Uh, it's a friend of mine who lives all the way the, across the country in California, and I haven't seen him in, in years. But he has that kind of personality that wherever Brent is, you want to be. His, his personality, it's, it's attractive, it's, it's compelling. This church is attractive. It's compelling. This church, it's revolutionary, yet at the same time, it's simple. It's beautiful. But at the same time, it's convicting. That's what we're going to see. What we find in this passage is the church acting like the church acting like the family that it truly is. And what we find is a church that, if we were given the choice, we'd want to be a part of. And don't get me wrong, this isn't a church that's perfect. This church has its own issues. We're going to see that in a couple chapters here in Acts chapter 5. Nor is this necessarily the church that's supposed to be the gold standard, the church that every church should imitate to a T. But when we come to this passage today and we get a picture, a peek into, into what this church looks like, 
What I want to consider with you together and really wrestle over is what makes this church so incredibly compelling? What is it that makes this church so incredibly attractive to us? And so, without any further explanation, let's go ahead and read this passage. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Then we'll pray, and we'll dive in together. All right? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let me read. <clears throat> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Be free, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture, this passage, Lord, that tells us a little bit about what your church community looked like right there in the first couple weeks, months of its existence. Father, we have a lot to learn from this passage. We have a lot to unload from this passage. And Father, I pray that as we do, it wouldn't just be something that fills our heads. It wouldn't just be something that uh, helps us understand what it means to be the church, but that it would actually be something that helps us live as the church. That this passage would give direction to us of what it looks like for us today to live as the people of God. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage, it would show us how we, as the church in Alton, New Hampshire, could be attractive. And compelling that what we show the world looks radically different than anything the world has to offer I pray that would be the result so conform us into your image make us a community like this community in the ways you will and we pray this Lord Jesus name amen, amen. all right so what makes this church so compelling what is it that makes this church so attractive what is it that stirs that feeling in your heart of beauty when you read this passage. Let's go ahead and investigate. Because if there is anything in this passage, in this description of the church that we should be imitating, let's figure it out so that we can imitate it. And let's start by looking at verse 42. I'll read it for us. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the prayers. This first verse, really what it does is it tells us a little bit about what this community does. It tells us about their, their rhythms, the building blocks that make up what they do together as a church. And the first thing that they do together as a church, number one, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. In other words, they sought instruction. And what's really incredible about this passage here is that we know exactly what that means. We know what the apostles' instructions are, we, or the apostles' teachings are, specifically because we still have the apostles' teachings. Books like 1st and 2nd Peter, James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all of these are the apostles' teachings. These are the things that this community, this church dedicated themselves to, devoted themselves to. 
They went to the apostles' teachings in order to learn for themselves more and more about who this Jesus was, to learn more about how to live as citizens of his new kingdom, to grow into their identity as followers of Jesus Christ. So the first thing this community does is they devote themselves to the teachings of the apostles. That's number one. Number two, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Let me continue reading in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this early church, they weren't just seeking instruction. They were seeking community. And get this, they were seeking community through a rhythm of gathering and scattering, just like we do. We see gathering. They, they gather together in the temple to worship God, and then they scatter to live out their unity day by day in fellowship together, breaking bread in their homes. It says that here two different times. Food brings us together. And this community comes together to share meals in each other's homes and goes to worship together in the temple. This community does life together, essentially. And just a little side note before we keep going, we have to notice this community, they're still going to the Jewish temple. And this isn't something that we're going to dig into here, but it is a little bit interesting, isn't it? Why is it that this community still goes to worship in the Jewish temple? Aren't they Christians now? Well, I think that what we have to recognize, be free, when we look at this passage, is that Jesus didn't come into the world to start a new religion. He came to fulfill an old religion. Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies that was given to the Jews ages before. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see these Christians continuing to interact with the Jews. We'll talk about that more as we walk through the book of Acts. But it's an important thing to point out at this point. So what does this church community do? Number one, they diligently devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number two, they intentionally seek out community, gathering and scattering together. And then number three, they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. You know, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to see that prayer is a hallmark of Christian community. Over and over again, as we go through this book, what we see the Christians doing when they're together is praying and praying and praying. That's what they did in chapter 1, verse 14. But as they were waiting for the Spirit, and that's what they're going to continue doing throughout the book whenever they're together. So this community, they, they broke bread intentionally seeking community with one another. And here, when they pray, I believe what they're doing is intentionally seeking community with God, to commune with God. I mean, one jump, what jumps off the page to me as I come to this passage at first is the community element to it. But I don't think that we should miss that this group of people, this early church, it's not just seeking community. It is seeking God together. They are seeking God together. And they're doing that by going to the Word. They're doing that by going to the temple. They're doing that by devoting themselves to prayer. This community is intentionally seeking out intimacy with their God. And I think the other thing that's important for us to point out at this point as we continue in on this passage is that this community is living on mission. We're going to see that very clearly here in the next couple of verses. 
And for us to live on mission, we have to remember something very clearly. A prayerless Christian is a missionless Christian. A prayerless church is a missionless church. A prayerless mission is a fruitless mission. Prayer is essential to the mission that God has called us to do in the world because all fruit comes as a result of His work in people. We are dependent on God if we are going to make any headway for the kingdom in our world. We are dependent for the Spirit to work in our lives, empowering us to do His mission, and we're dependent on the Spirit to work in other people's lives in order for them to respond to the message of the gospel. What this reminds me here is that we are utterly dependent on prayer if we are going to do the work of mission. So in verse 42, what we see is a community of people who are loving God and pursuing God through prayer and through his word and through worship in the temple. A community who is loving one another and pursuing one another through fellowship and the breaking of bread together. And I have to be honest, when I come to this passage and I see the three main rhythms that they do right here in verse 42, I'm, I'm encouraged. Because be free, this is what we do. Teaching, community, and prayer, that's not just central to their fellowship, to their church. It's also central to our church. When we come together on Sunday mornings, yes, teaching is a central part of it, maybe the central part of it. But then it's also, God's word is also central to what we do in our home groups. Essential to what we do in our youth group, in our kids' ministry. It's essential to what we do when we meet together one-on-one -on -one to study the Bible together, when we uh, gather together to do reading plans together through this time of COVID. It's even central to how our families do discipleship in our homes. The Word of God is central. The teaching of the Word of God is central to what we do as a community as well. I find that encouraging. Also, fellowship. Having fellowship right now during COVID is, is harder than it typically is, but fellowship is central to what we do as a church today as well. Community is a central part of our home groups, of our youth group, once again, of our one-on-one -on -one Bible relationships, also of just organic gatherings that happen in the day-to-day -day lives of the people of our church. We pursue the Word of God as a church, and we pursue fellowship. That's encouraging to me. We gather and we scatter just like them. And finally, prayer. Yes, we come together to pray every month on Zoom before our services. We did it this morning. But prayer is also essential to the life of our church in a hundred other ways. I, we, we, we pray before every elder meeting, before every leader meeting, before and after every home group. Prayer is central to how we do life together as a church. And so, be free. I just want to encourage you. Let's continue to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's Word, to fellowship, and to prayer. I'm encouraged because when we look at verse 42, I see that we are imitating what we see there. But now we come to verse 43. And in verse 42 is a pretty good description of actually what we do today in our church Verse 43 is a different story. So let me read verse 43 to you. We read this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What do we do with that? Okay, so it seems like we should be imitating what we see in verse 42, but verse 43 
this doesn't describe what our community looks like. We don't have signs and wonders happening in our community. Should we? Should we be expecting miracles to happen in our church community? Miraculous things that, that surprise us and, and shock us? Well, it's a good question. The question that we need to be asking is, is what we see in verse 43 prescriptive or descriptive? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Is it prescriptive? Meaning, what we see here, does it prescribe for us what we should do? Or does it simply describe for us what did happen in that church? Is it an explanation of what happened that in the early church? Or is it a command to us of what should be happening today? That's a really important question. And it's a question that we don't really have time to dig into today. But luckily, next week, uh, in, in the next passage, we're going to see a miraculous healing. And we're going to spend a lot of time next week digging into this question. Are miraculous gifts and, and healings, should we expect that today? So I look forward to digging into that next week. But this week what I want to do is I just simply want to remember something that we learned last week. Last week, what we learned about Jesus was that he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works. That's chapter 2, verse 22. And what that's telling us is that Jesus' miracles, the miracles he did, they had a purpose. The purpose of those miracles wasn't just to be a magic show. Rather, the purpose of those miracles were to be signposts for the people. Those miracles were meant to confirm the good news he was speaking. They were meant to demonstrate the kingdom that he was bringing. They were meant to validate everything that Jesus did and said. And it's the same thing is true here for these disciples. The miracles that were happening in this community were meant to prove and to validate everything that they were telling everybody about Jesus Christ. They were signs to validate them. And so the first thing we see about this community is their rhythms, what they did. Teaching, fellowship, prayer. Second thing we see about this community is the signs that happened among them that meant they're meant to confirm and to validate their message. But it's the last thing we see here. What we see in the rest of this passage that I feel like really excites and, and challenges me is what we see in the rest of this passage that most compels me by this early church and convicts me about this early church. So let's keep reading together. Verses 44 through 47. I'll read it for us. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So I grew up in the suburbs, uh, the suburbs of, of Houston, Texas. And after I graduated, I went to school uh, in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, and Moody is right in the middle of Chicago, right downtown. And I had never lived in an urban, urban place before, so it was a whole new world to me. And every student at Moody has a required uh, ministry that they're supposed to do out in the city. And for me, when I got there, I was assigned uh, to work at a homeless shelter on the north side of the city. 
It was a wonderful experience for me. I went up there every week with a group of other students from Moody, and we, we worked in the community. We built relationships. We got to talk about Jesus to the homeless people there. But one day at the end of our time, we were leaving, and the lady who, who ran uh, the place when we were there, uh, she asked us if we wanted to go back with her to, to see the rest of the community. And we didn't know what she was talking about. What, what do you mean the rest of the community? Isn't, isn't this the community? And she says, oh, no, 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 the rest of the commune. And so we went with her. And it turns out that this, uh, this homeless shelter, um, uh, not, we didn't know this, but this homeless shelter was run by a Christian commune that lived together communally in the north part of Chicago. They own two massive high-rise buildings. And here's how it worked. Everybody who lived in this commune basically lived like a massive dorm for grown-up people. <laughs> they lived together. They shared common kitchen space. They shared common bathroom space. And uh, they even shared a common bank account. Everybody in the commune was required to work for one of the different, um, different commune-owned businesses. And all the proceeds from those businesses went into a common pot which was used to cover all the expenses of the community. It was radical. There was nothing like this in my suburb where I grew up. This was unlike anything I had ever seen before. It seemed strange to me. But if I'm honest, it seemed pretty similar to what we read right here in Acts chapter 2. Is this what we should do? Be free. Should we start a Christian commune? I mean, it seems like this is what the Christians did in Acts chapter 2. Is that what, does that mean that we should do it? Oh, be free. I think, again, this brings us back to the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this telling us what we should do? Or is this just describing what they did? And one of the most important questions we have to ask ourselves when we consider whether something in the Bible is prescriptive or descriptive is we have to step back and ask, how does the rest of the Bible handle this topic? How does the rest of the Bible speak in this situation about the topic of private property. Should we have all of our property in common? Well, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, and actually the Bible as a whole, we find that a lot of people have private property. <laughs> what we find, actually, is a lot of instruction throughout the Bible about how we should use our own personal private property, indicating that it's not meant for us to pool all of our resources. So, no. We're not meant to live communally in that sense. Though, I suppose, the Bible also says nothing to prevent us from doing so. So if you're interested, let me know. I can connect you to some friends in Chicago. But even though it doesn't say that we should live communally, even though communal living is not the New Testament's expectation for the people of God, what we learn from this passage and many others is that radical generosity is expected. Communal living is not expected, but radical generosity is. Let's unpack that for a little bit. Who's generous? When you, when you ask your, 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 yourself, who is it that, who is generous, who, who is the first person that comes to mind? I know for me, when I think about that, one name, name that comes immediately to mind is, is Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates uh, formerly the world's richest person, he has given away $35 billion up to this point just through his organization, uh, doing amazing things in the world. 
And nobody would say that Bill Gates isn't gen generous. $35 billion is incredibly, incredibly generous. But at the same time, Bill Gates's generosity is a different kind of generosity than what we see right here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is radical generosity. I mean, Bill Gates, he's given away $35 billion, but he still has $123 billion left over. What makes the generosity of Acts chapter 2 so radical is not the volume of the generosity, but the sacrifice of the generosity. The generosity that we see in Acts chapter 2 is less like Bill Gates' generosity, which is a great thing. But it's more like the generosity of perhaps a high school boy who sells his car so that he can have the money to fill the oil tank of the single mom who's living next door. The generosity that we see in Acts chapter 2 is less like Bill Gates and it's, it's more like the generosity of uh, somebody who works an hourly job, who takes a week off uh, and, and buys a plane ticket to go be with a friend whose spouse just died of cancer. The generosity that we see in Acts chapter 2 is radical, specifically because it is so incredibly costly. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The generosity of Bill Gates, it impresses the world. But the generosity, the type of generosity, the costly generosity, the radical generosity that we see in Acts chapter 2, that shocks the world. That is radically countercultural. So here's the question. Why did they do it? Why did Acts 2, the, the Christians that we read about in Acts chapter 2, live with such radical generosity? The book of 2 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter that Paul's writing to the churches in Corinth, or the church in Corinth. And as he's writing to them, what he's doing is he's asking them to send him money. You see, Paul is raising money to, to help meet the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. And as he's writing this fundraising letter, basically, he's, he holds up the churches in Macedonia as an example. The churches uh, like Philippi and Thessalonica. He holds them up as an example of generosity. Let me read this to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor to take part in the relief of the saints. In Acts, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, what we're seeing is an example of radical generosity. These are Christians who are trying to give beyond their means. But the amazing thing about this passage is that after Paul gives this picture of radical generosity, he then turns to explain why they're being so generous. He then turns to explain what's causing them to yearn to give so, so lavishly to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The churches in Macedonia were radically generous 
precisely because they had been shown radical generosity. The church in Acts chapter 2, they were radically generous precisely because they had been shown radical generosity. Be free. We might not be called to live communally. We might not be called to denounce all private property as evil. But we are called to practice radical, even costly generosity, specifically because we have been shown radical and costly generosity. Christians, this is what the people of Jesus do. We give generously what we have been generously given. And in fact, this is a pattern that we see all over scripture. We see in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're called to forgive precisely because we have been forgiven. John 13, we're called to love precisely because Jesus has loved us. We are called to be generous because we have been shown such incredible generosity. And so when we do this, when we imitate the love, the forgiveness, and yes, the generosity of Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we are embodying the gospel. What we're doing is we are making the gospel visible. We are putting Jesus' costly, radical, sacrificial generosity on display for the world to see. And when we do, we shock the world. Do you think the church shocks the world right now? Do you think the Church of Jesus Christ right now, let's just say in America, is shocking the world? Or let me ask the question like this. If you weren't a Christian, would you be attracted to the church right now or would you be repulsed by the church? Would you be attracted or repulsed by what you see the church doing on the news, what you see the church posting on social media? Would you be compelled by it or would you be repelled by it? I want you to really ask yourself that question. Because I can answer it for myself. If, if all I knew about the Church of Jesus Christ is what I saw Christ followers posting on Facebook and what I saw Christ followers uh, doing on the news, I would not be compelled. I would not be attracted. Rather, I would be repelled. I would be repulsed and be free. It's true. What we want to see in our country and in the world as Christ followers is we want to see a true revival. We want to see people come to know him. We want to see many souls coming to Jesus. We want to see the doors of every gospel-believing church in the country bursting at the seams. But when our Facebook walls show the world that our hope is in, a is in our country rather than in the kingdom, when our Facebook walls show the world that our hope is in a politician rather than in a king, when Christians are clamoring for power rather than sacrificially serving their neighbors, when Christians are speaking out against sin without simultaneously giving the amazing message of hope in sin, why would people want to come? Why would people want to be a part of the church? Would you? Based on what you see of the church today, on Facebook, on the news, would you want to be a part of that? 
Because be free, be free, I think it's important to say we can't do anything about what other people are doing in other places. We, we can't control what gets on the news. But we can show our friends and our neighbors the truth. We can be salt and light where we are to the people we know. We can show our friends and our neighbors and our families that what they're getting from Facebook, what they're getting from the news, is not the real story about what the church is. We can show them that the church isn't about getting power, but it's a community of people who are committed to imitating a man, Jesus Christ, who gave up his power. We can show them that the church isn't a community of hate, it's a community of love. We can show them that even though we do believe in sin and hate sin, we are also a people who have a message of hope for people who sin. Be free. We have to not just tell, but also show the world the true story about who Jesus is and what the church is. And how do we do that? We do two things. First of all, we remember the gospel. We remember the story of Jesus Christ. We remember that we once were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 says. We once were blind to the truth. We once were floating dead in the water. But by faith in Jesus' radical, costly, generous, sacrificial loves, our sins have been washed away, Hebrews 10. We were born again, John 3. We have been made new cre creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And be free, what we need to do, first and foremost, is we have to remember that we didn't do that. We didn't achieve that. We didn't earn that. We never deserved that. And we can't boast as if we did. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. Everything that we have in the gospel was given by the radically generous grace of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we need to do, be free, is we need to remember the gospel, to remember that we have been shown radical generosity. And the second thing we need to do is we need to imitate Jesus' radical generosity. We need to put his radical generosity on display. And be free, we can do that now specifically because our hope is not in what we have. Our hope is not in what we can do. Our hope in this world and in eternity is not in what we have or can accomplish. Our hope is in something that cannot be lost. Our hope is in a God who will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. In Jesus Christ, Philippians 4. Our hope is in a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ever ask or think, Galatians 3. Be free, we can live in radical generosity because our hope is secure. It cannot be lost. Our hope is secure, so be free. Let's give generously. Let's give and shock the world. Let's give as the spirit-empowered people we are, who are certain of what is ours. Let's be radically generous, be free, with our time, 
serving one another in the church in official and unofficial ways, serving our community, our neighbors, even our families in official ministries and unofficial ways as friends. Maybe brainstorming together with your family or together with your home group, asking questions about how you might live in a way that shocks our community. Let's live radically generous with our time, but also with our money, with our possessions. Maybe we can actively think together, actively seek ways that we can bless our world, bless one another. Or maybe think about this, what if you and, and your family act, actively sat down and considered what you might save for, save and put money aside in order to give it away, to bless the world somehow, to bless a community in need, to support a ministry that's doing good work. What does it look like for you to be radically generous? And be free, I love this about our church, but we are a church that is radically generous. I have seen so much generosity in our church, even just recently in, in, the, Pandora, in the, uh, the COVID pandemic. In fact, if you were at the business meeting a couple weeks ago, you saw our church is in financially good shape specifically because our church is so incredibly generous. Thank you for putting the gospel on display in that way. Thank you for modeling generosity to me, to your kids to each other. It's not just financial though. We see the generosity in the church in a million different ways. We don't have time to go into all of the examples, but one that jumps out to me right immediately is in the last few weeks how one family in our church set aside an entire day to make muffins of their own initiative. They made hundreds of muffins, they bagged them all up, and they drove over all over the entire region bringing muffins to every a family in the church whose address they had, spent an entire day doing that just so that we would all have muffins to eat together as we watched the service the next day. That's radically generous. That kind of generosity, it shocks the world. Another picture of the generosity in our church is even in our ministry leaders. A, 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 our, our ministry leaders are notorious for not submitting receipts. <laughs> The reason being is that in their generosity, it is just so worth it to give their money, their resources to continue the work that they are doing in our church and beyond. Be free, I'm sure you can think of other examples of people in our church and outside who model this kind of radical generosity. But be free, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to continue considering what it might look like for you to embody the radical generosity that you have been shown in Jesus Christ. Take some time with your family. Pray about that. Look for opportunities. Look for people who need to be blessed. Set money aside. Save for the opportunity to bless. And when that opportunity comes, shock the world. Shock the world by living in a way that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we go back to the original question. What is it about Acts, the church in Acts chapter 2 that was so compelling, that was so attractive, that led so many people in? The answer that I find here is that they did not only teach the gospel, but they embodied the gospel in the shape of their community, specifically through radical 
generosity. And the Lord added to their numbers, day by day, those who were being saved. Be free, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture. I need this picture of generosity in your church. Father, as I was preparing for today, I was so convicted of how poor I do, of radically giving away what I consider mine. But Father, we, we are desperate. I am desperate. We, we want to see people come to know you. We want people to experience the radical generosity that you showed them on the cross. So Father, help us imitate your generosity so that we can tell them the message, so that we can speak to them the story of what you did, the perfect life you lived, the death you died in their place, the resurrection you accomplished, the victory you won over sin and death. Father, please work this into our church. Shape us more like the gospel. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in the process. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.